These are the things that I learned during the 12th week of 2011, March 20th through March 26th. March 20th, snakes can eat through foam. I sure hope you're not listening to this late at night because this might be nightmare inducing. In the house that I lived in, we had a bit of a snake problem. It was not an uncommon occurrence to sometimes come downstairs and encounter a snake just hanging out on the carpet. Now where I lived, the type of snakes that we would often encounter would be the eastern garter snakes, mostly harmless in nature. They would often be small to medium in size, usually colored black with a yellow stripe or two. If you were out biking in this area, you would occasionally maybe find one in the road. Or if you were out walking in the woods, you might just find one hanging out in the leaves or in the dirt. You know, usual snake spots. According to Animals.bio, the Eastern Garter Snake is a medium-sized, non-venomous snake that is native to North America. Its average lifespan is about 10 years. Its weight is usually about 453.5 grams, give or take, and its length can range from 46 to 66 centimeters. They have a distinct yellow or white stripe. Their typical color may be greenish, brown, or black. Their general habitats tend to be lakes, rivers, streams, swamps, bogs, ponds, drainage ditches, or quarries. They also like to inhabit stone walls that separate the forest from fields. And that brings us to my personal experience with these snakes. We lived in a house that did not have a basement. Right underneath the first floor was the foundation of the house. And that's at ground level. Over time, critters like snakes could find ways to burrow through cracks that gradually formed in the foundation over time be it just from aging, or maybe from weather effects, or maybe from flaws in the original design. And I would not be surprised if their instincts determined that it was a safe and protected place from predators. Whatever it was, the snakes found a way to get it done, and they would find their way into the house, often from a very consistent spot in one of the corner rooms of the first floor. There would be certain times of the year, often here in March, that we would see snakes more often than others. There could have been plenty of reasons for this. One is that snakes are cold-blooded animals. In cooler weather, they tend to be more inactive, and they have more energy the warmer the environment is. A house is going to be more warm than the outdoors in late winter, early spring. And in this region, in the Northern Hemisphere, Late March would still qualify as this time period. There's also the possibility that maybe a mating season was going on, or maybe that eggs were hatching in that little tunnel that they burrowed into the house. I think it really signaled a core problem with the foundation, don't you think? Anyways, my dad would attempt to remedy the problem by placing some expandable foam in the tunnel that he located in the corner of the first floor. This worked for a while, until we started seeing snakes again, and after further analysis, we noticed that it appeared that they either dug through or ate through that foam. I have to admire their perseverance. This problem would continue for a couple of years until we did a remodel of the house, which seemingly fixed the problem of the snake invasion for a time, until somewhat recently. 
Within just a few months of recording this actually, where I found another snake nearby. The difference now is that I have a cat, and the cat can usually find them long before I can. It can be a bit unnerving to remove a snake from your house. You kinda have to be able to sneak up on it almost, and have a good Tupperware container, and slide a good piece of paper underneath it, in a way that you can trap it in between the paper and the little container, and then scoop it up and bring it outside, maybe somewhere in the woods, preferably far away from your house, and then just kind of let them go. And you also have to deal with the squirminess, especially if the temperature changes from the inside of the house to the outdoors, depending on what time of year it is. In this case, we would have gone from the warm climate of the house to the cold climate of the outdoors and the snake may become more or less active. In theory, you would think the snake would become less active by going into the cooler environment. Weirdly enough, in my most recent snake removal operation, the snake actually got a little bit more feisty once I left the house and went outside to remove him. If you really do have a snake problem that is significantly worse than the one that I just described, you might want to maybe seek some professional help if you cannot take care of it yourself, or if the snakes that live in your region are actually harmful compared to the ones that we deal with here. March 21st. The first day of spring, or the day after, equals a lot of snow. So this seems to be more of an observational thing learned rather than an objective one. I was trying to find some supporting data for this, but it seems that the National Weather Service and any other historical weather data that I could find for my region completely lacked the precipitation data. Furthermore, trying to navigate weather.gov just took me down this labyrinth of hyperlinks, half of which were functional, half of which were not or they would take me to reports that just took me to blank pages, or for regions that did not apply to me whatsoever. This whole website feels really disorganized, as if it was built maybe 20 or 30 years ago by one guy, and then was never properly maintained, and then they just grafted on various reports, summaries, data, graphs, and visions of design that all just meshed together in one incoherent mess. I'm sure there is valuable information buried somewhere in here, but if it is, I haven't found it, and I've spent way too much time trying to find it at this point. I guess that's a government weather website for you. So unfortunately, while I really wanted to do more than just go in blind here, I think I'm just going to have to do that. I do remember, for a stretch of a couple of years at least, there was a phenomenon where, around the first day of spring, right when we thought that... We were done with winter, and we were ready to move on to warmer temperatures and longer sunshine during the day. Mother Nature would decide, here's one semi-final dose of winter, just for you. Ironically though, I found a photo from March 23rd, just two days after this, and it looked like there was basically no snow on the ground. So unless there were two warm days in a row with a lot of rain or something, I'm not entirely sure why I wrote this down or what this was in reference to. That kind of stinks. It leaves me with not much material to discuss for this topic about the weather. So I'm just going to have to close this one out with a recollection that I guess there was a snowstorm around the first day of spring. And while we have the statement, April showers bring May flowers, Perhaps we should commission a new statement called March Snow Makes the April Sun Glow.
I'll accept royalty payments in advance for anyone who wants to use that one. March 22nd, what LogMeIn is. LogMeIn is an enterprise IT technology company specializing in remote, cloud, and other technology products and services. They first began with a remote product called LogMeIn. It allowed support desks or admins or other technology folks to control remote computers, either for assistance or for remote access. Originally founded in 2003 in Budapest, Hungary, LogMeIn would be acquired by two private equity firms in Boston, Massachusetts. Their world headquarters is now located in this city as opposed to Hungary, even though they still have offices in the old location as well as a few others across the world. The LogMeIn of 2011 is a very different company from the LogMeIn of today. And in that context, it was more about their remote access products as opposed to LastPass or whatever other meeting software they've acquired over the years. In fact, 2011 would be a transitional year for LogMeIn. Their original product lineup, the one that they were most notable and famous for, LogMeIn Free, Pro, and Rescue, was a suite of products designed for remote support where either a systems administrator or help desk person could drop into a computer to provide support or remote access. The most popular product was known as LogMeIn Free, which a lot of people used, and this was the product that I learned here in 2011. However, there is a cost to running a free service without monetization. Despite there being a LogMeIn Pro, the free offering was used a lot more. It appears that LogMeIn caught wind of this, and they would discontinue the product abruptly on January 21st, 2014, only giving users about seven days to either switch to LogMeIn Pro or come up with another remote access solution. Quote, in order to address the evolving needs of our customers, we will be unifying our portfolio of free and premium remote access products into a paid-only offering. We believe this offering to be the best premium desktop, cloud, and mobile access experience available in the market today. This drew the ire of a lot of users that were using the free version of LockMeIn. The seven-day grace period seemed to be a sore spot for a lot of people. Personally, I feel like that was a bit of a sudden shift. However, there may have been a reason for this. In November of 2013, John Brodkin of Ars Technica posted an article about fake tech support scams and how services like LogMeIn and TeamViewer were often used for malicious actors to drop into unsuspecting users' computers masquerading as legitimate technical support services, claiming they were Microsoft or Apple, instead only to steal data, ransom the user, or perform any other similar criminal activity. This is only speculation, but maybe there is a chance that LogMeIn saw these numbers and did not want to be associated with electronic crime enterprise. Just my guess. Whatever the reason, though, they discontinued the free product, requiring a premium service to be more in line with what the company would eventually become. In July 2011, LogMeIn would quote-unquote begin a move into cloud services. One such step in this direction was them acquiring an Internet of Things startup known as Pachube. 
That pronunciation may not be 100% accurate, forgive me. At the time, the Internet of Things, also known as IoT, was starting to get pretty big. You had things like the Philips Hue, where you could control light switches and light bulbs using your smartphone or whatnot, and all kinds of other devices, microwaves, fridges, etc., were becoming quote-unquote smart. And this was a big fad in the tech industry. Some of it's still around today, and some of it has been dialed back. Regardless, LogMeIn saw this coming, and they wanted to get overall more into the cloud infrastructure. I'm not so certain they ever fully went down the IoT path. It seems their current offerings don't really reflect this. Focusing more on remote meeting and support software to emphasize the work-from-home shift. Another notable major acquisition of LogMeIn was LastPass, which was a password management application. I previously touched on LastPass when I was discussing the Xmarks LastPass saga a few episodes ago. This is sort of the other side of that story, just in a different context. LogMeIn was sort of one of the first of its kind in terms of remote support using a professional product that didn't require a lot of technical setup to get working. Before, you had things like VNC, which required you to forward ports or set up VPNs, or do a lot of overly technical things that an end user, particularly a less tech-savvy end user, would not really be able to handle on their own. If you're on the phone with someone, especially from a help desk, you don't want to confuse them or distress them even more than you have to. And for a time, LogMeIn was the perfect product and you didn't have to pay anything to use it. As time progressed though, LogMeIn wanted folks to pay for the product instead. So they discontinued LogMeIn Free and continued to offer LogMeIn Pro and LogMeIn Rescue. LogMeIn Rescue is particularly designed for help desks, where the LogMeIn agent software may be installed on a user's computer, enabling the IT service desk to just drop in and assist. This type of system, though, is best designed for folks that all work within the same company, as opposed to random call-ins from customers outside of the company. There are other products that can assist with that, TeamViewer was one such popular product of the time. LogMeIn also offers a stripped-down version of the LogMeIn free service known as Join.me, designed to be a one-off remote support or presentation system. Other companies and services also exist to offer similar products. Anyways, now that we're done with the history homily about LogMeIn and remote access software, where does this leave us? In 2011, seeing LogMeIn in action was one of those things that helped me gain a better understanding about enterprise remote support software, greater than simply the realm of Apple Remote Desktop and VNC, which required a little more legwork to set up and a little more technical cooperation on both sides, as opposed to LogMeIn, which was a little bit more straightforward. LogMeIn Rescue is still a product that's used by a lot of major companies. I've seen that used very recently, actually. The salad days of the free LogMeIn product, though, have since passed, replaced by lesser offerings such as Join.me, and if you want an equivalent service that harkens back to the 2011 free LogMeIn days, you just might have to look elsewhere. But that's just the natural evolution of a company that has to make money, I guess. 
March 23rd, the Recording Industry Association of America once sued for $7 trillion, and the case was thrown out for being ridiculous. When I was trying to do research for this topic, there was a lot of incorrect information, so this was one of those things where I had to be kind of careful about the journalistic integrity, and attempted to find a lot of corroborating articles to make sure what I'm about to say actually makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, please forgive me. I gave it my best effort. The $7 trillion case actually had to do with the Recording Industry Association of America, also known as the RIAA, versus the peer-to-peer -peer software known as LimeWire, which was popular in the mid-2000s before it was shut down. So let's start with the damages number. I wrote down $7 trillion. However, I found numbers that were sort of similar, but not quite similar. I saw numbers such as 75 trillion, or 750 million, or 72 trillion dollars. I don't know if I forgot to put an extra digit in this thing learned. Regardless, depending on which article you were reading, the numbers seemed to fluctuate anyway, so I don't feel too bad about getting this wrong. Anyways, where do we even begin with this lawsuit? LimeWire was very similar to Napster from the start of the millennium. It sort of continued the idea of peer-to-peer -peer software and file sharing and the rampant distribution of songs that users may or may not have had permissions to actually share with their friends and download to their iPods and Zunes. This became so popular and word spread so fast that the Recording Industry Association of America naturally caught wind of this, as they were still getting over the Napster controversy and legal action, and they saw LimeWire as just a repeat of this event. They weren't just going to let this slide again, so they took them to court. If you remember a couple episodes ago, I discussed a thing learned where Engadget wasn't properly vetting their sources and making assumptions and not verifying facts. This is sort of a similar situation. An article from Computer World tries to explain the timeline of what happened. Ironically, it apparently began with an article from Computer World, which then spread to the website NME.com and then the tech news site TechDirt.com. The damages report was claimed to be $72 trillion in the lawsuit. Apparently this was wildly inaccurate, and the megaphone of the internet and the redistribution and republication of information, often in an unverified manner, just amplified this incorrect statement. However, as we all know, the more exorbitant and negative a headline tends to be, the more people will click onto it. $72 trillion sounds just a little bit insane when you think about it. A cheeky statement from Tom'sGuide.com discusses that the United States national debt at the time was at about $14 trillion and steadily trickling upward. So asking for someone to pay $72 trillion in total damages is nothing short of unrealistic, impossible, and insane. The word they used was absurd. The story even made it to high-profile news sites such as CBS and Forbes. I'm going to fast forward just a little bit to May of 2011 to tell you the end of the story. 
LimeWire ended up settling with the RIAA for $105 million, a far cry from the quote-unquote $72 trillion that was inaccurately claimed in publications. However, it is still less than the $750 million target that the RIAA was actually aiming for, according to a follow-up posted on Forbes.com from the quote-unquote RIAA PR department, as the author puts it. This suit must have gone through several iterations because there still was a statement put out by LimeWire's legal team praising the judge's decision to throw out the initial case, citing its ridiculousness in nature. The legal disputes would be settled out of court, probably to simplify things and save a lot of time, and maybe just cut to the chase. Perhaps negotiations were performed to reduce that number from $700 plus million down to one-seventh of that amount. This court case would still pretty much put the final nail in the coffin for the LimeWire software as it petered out over time, and they would agree to stop distributing the software entirely. This doesn't mean that all music piracy has been quashed. It's a never-ending battle on the internet that the RIAA will probably never fully win, but that's just how it goes. I think we can file this thing learned under the category of journalistic integrity and making sure that all of the facts are straight. The moral arc of the internet can be greatly positive or greatly negative. Let this be a cautionary tale to all those out there who publish stories. Make sure your facts are always straight so we may curve that arc towards the direction of honesty. March 24th. Exan was originally called Centrovision explaining the CV commands in Terminal. We are back on another Exan topic after a hiatus of a couple of episodes. As a recap, Exan is a storage product that Apple offers that is designed around quote-unquote high-performance storage networking, high-availability architecture, feasible volume management, and easy remote administration. Apple introduced Exan at the Worldwide Developer Conference, WWDC, in 2004, and they trademarked the name XAN in March 2004, much to the anticipation of a bunch of forum users who were speculating on what this meant and what XAN stood for. XAN is very well liked in the professional video editing world, as it provides both the bandwidth and the throughput for high demand, high capacity video, such as 4K and 8K, stuff that would make a regular network based file server choke, but with XSAN and optical connections, it is buttery smooth. Now that we've refreshed on what XSAN is, let's expand the topic a little bit. XSAN is not an entirely original Apple concoction. It is actually based on the Storenext file system, and the Storenext file system was originally called the Centrovision file system, or CVFS. According to a book from the Apple Training Series for XSAN 2 Administration, a guide to designing, deploying, and maintaining XSAN. Quote, XSAN is fully compatible with Quantum's Storenext file system, so you can set up XServe and RAID systems to act as SAN controllers and storage for Windows, Sun Solaris, Unix, IBM AIX, SGA IRIX, 
or Linux clients running Storenext FX software. So when you think about it, XAN is basically Apple's flavor of a technology that is provided by the Quantum Corporation called Storenext. And as a result, both of these sides of the same coin share a lot of the same utilities, tools, and in some sections, names of commands. When you drop down into the command line for XAN-based operations, as opposed to the XAN graphical user interface, you may very quickly find that a lot of these commands start with CV, such as CVFSCK, which is a file system checking command centered around the XAN and Storenext file systems. It's a great little utility to check if everything is okay or repair errors if they come up. Quantum also offers at least one product for the Storenext and XAN intercompatibility between operating systems to help make administration a little bit easier. There are also solutions offered by Quantum that don't use Apple hardware at all, but may use the term XAN every now and then because it is naturally very similar. The next time you are around a fiber channel video editing storage solution and something goes wrong, perhaps suggest to the systems administrator to run a CVFSCK, and they might turn their heads and either not know what you're talking about, or, now that you know, you can just tell them the story of Centrovision, Storenext, and Exan. March 25th. Freshmen think drinking counts as a job slash activity. Am I honestly wrong in thinking this here? I can smell the sarcasm in this thing learned. So bear in mind at this point I am a junior in college, and I had that smug upperclassman aura. I don't remember much about this. Maybe it was just a passing comment I heard, or maybe it was just a rather difficult person at either the help desk or the media lab, or it could have been someone in my dorm, who knows what it could have been. But you always have those people, you know, the ones that are only in college to drink. Perhaps they're undeclared or just quote-unquote in college to figure things out, and it leads them down some interesting paths. You probably know what this is if you've ever been around a college environment. I guess in a few professions you can somewhat explain that drinking could count as a job or activity. I worked on the set of a pilot TV show called Boston Root, where it was a competitive Beirut tournament, and we filmed it in a bar in real time, and there was plenty of drinking. Albeit not with freshmen in college, obviously. It was more folks in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. But it was still a thing, and I imagine that drinking can definitely enhance the experience and if your job is a competitive sports player person, then there you go. Drinking counts as a job or activity. And finally, March 26th, macros in Microsoft Excel. Sometimes known as the poor man's programming interface. Macros in Microsoft Excel are magical, horrifying, and useful things, depending on what you program them for. What a macro basically is in Excel is an automated task that can be triggered when you do something. It could be a mathematical computation, or an automatic formula that can fill in various cells in your spreadsheet, or maybe it can install a virus on your computer. It can do a whole lot of things. Macros are powered by the Visual Basic language, which was developed by Microsoft. An offshoot of Visual Basic, known as Visual Basic for Applications, or VBA, is commonly used in Microsoft Office as well. You can either program a macro by just going straight into Excel's programming interface, 
or you can record yourself performing an action using the macro recorder and it will save it for you to use as a stepping stone. The language isn't held in particularly high regard. StackOverflow.com rates VBA as the number one most dreaded programming language as of May 2020, most likely due to its age and programmers' general preference to use better, newer, and more robust languages that are not just trapped within Microsoft Office applications. Microsoft themselves seems to be discouraging the use of Excel macros and VBA outside of very guided and guardrailed situations, usually due to their potential for unleashing viruses on a computer, especially if they are emailed out with a certain file extension and an unsuspecting user just opens it as an attachment, which will open to Excel, prompting them, this sheet has macros, do you want to run them? And if they click yes, that is open season on their computer. So Microsoft has been taking security measures to try to curb this practice. It also can create a business opportunity for them to entice users to move to Office 365, which have more specialized products such as Microsoft Flow or Power Automate, which can be the spiritual successor to macros, but operate in a more safe environment with more checks and balances. I programmed macros for a little while, I did it in a smaller scale, where I had a Excel spreadsheet that I used for myself at a job a few years from now, in about 2013, for checking in and out hardware such as laptops or inventorying computers in the building that I worked in, and entering all of these serial numbers was a complete pain, but I did have a USB barcode scanner which would type the barcode as it read it and pressed enter and I was able to program a Microsoft Excel macro around this behavior and cause it to capture that input text and save it in a particular row in a spreadsheet and perform a lookup. And this little homegrown solution that I programmed right inside Excel was an easy way to inventory the hardware that I had. This file contained an extension .xlsm, which indicated that there were macros in the file. This is the type of file that Microsoft is generally discouraging from sending via email, as this can be a vector for viruses now. March 26, 2011 was my introduction to the world of macros in Microsoft Excel. I wouldn't say it immediately paid off, but about two years later, in a real job in the real world, it definitely helped me in so many ways. And we have reached the end of the 12th week of 2011. We learned a lot of fun things this week. I had a lot of fun going back and researching some of these topics. The LimeWire RIAA lawsuit in particular was a wild ride that I completely forgot about, and I probably wouldn't have known this if I hadn't actually incorrectly written down the figure for which LimeWire was being sued for. Additionally, I was a bit dismayed at the first day of spring, lots of snow thing learned where I wasn't able to find a lot of backing data, so I had to fall back to my anecdotal memories for that one. And the history of LogMeIn was interesting too. I was happy that I was able to mostly get a view of what the products LogMeIn had prior to their cloud shift and acquisitions were, which gave me a lot of perspective and allowed me to tell a pretty good story, I'd say. On Friday the 25th, we were filming the intro for our yearly TV station film festival. It was always fun where we would just kind of make up some nonsensical plot and try to cram as many visual effects as we could into it and make it sort of be a nice little introduction to the film festival in general. And sometimes it was themed, and we would have recurring little skits 
interspliced between the actual submissions to kind of give a cohesive feeling of a complete product in general. No particularly interesting pictures or other calendar events other than that. Calendar was pretty full though at this time of the year. We were in the middle of the semester and starting to tilt towards the end of the semester, so there was very little breathing room between classes and work. That's about all I have for this week. Things Learned is a podcast that is entirely created, produced, edited, and published by myself. With a little help from some royalty-free music, all credits are available in the show notes, along with all of the other notes for all the things learned that I came across and performed research on this week. If you are a new listener, thanks for listening, and I hope you subscribe via whatever favorite podcast vehicle that you utilize. And if you are a returning listener, thanks as always for listening. Give this podcast a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever accepts podcast ratings if you feel it deserves it. It helps out a lot for the overall podcast rankings and such. And I hope to see you next week for week number 13, which will carry over into April of 2011. Thank you very much for listening to Things Learned. I will talk to you next time.